Hello and welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 54 of the podcast. Yeah, I know I've been releasing fewer of them lately, but eventually I'll catch up to speed and uh, release more. So this is episode 54 for the month of May 2022. If you like this podcast and want to support it, please leave a review on iTunes or whichever way you're listening to podcasts. It really helps others discover the podcast. And of course, it motivates me to release more content. All right, without further delay, let's crack open those journals, shall we? What's your favorite method of removing a polyp? Mine is using a cold snare that is a bit stiffer than the usual 10mm snare. This is because most polyps found are less than 10mm, but even if they are a bit bigger, you can remove them in a few pieces most of the time without even lifting. Traditionally, hot snare polypectomy is favored, but due to concerns for post-polypectomy bleeding and perforation, things have cooled off a bit. Main issue, no matter which technique you prefer, is incomplete resection, of course, which varies depending on the study from 5 to 35%. Some folks favor thin monofilament snares and specifically swear by these for low incomplete resection rates. This next study from American Journal of Gastroenterology looked at the effects of snare wire thickness on incomplete resection rate. A parallel randomized controlled study of one-to-one allocation of thin wire exacto cold snare or thick wire Olympus cold snare. After resection of the polyp, two biopsies were taken from the margins to see if the whole polyp was resected or not. A very standard thing to do when looking at this type of study. And it wasn't a small trial either, about 330 patients in each arm. Very impressive. And guess what? Incomplete resection rate was only 1.5%. Fairly low, and that's great news. Most polyps weren't big, so I'm not surprised here. Also remember that the cold snare protrusion, the little white nubbin you get after removing a polyp, Thick wire polyp had a higher rate of formation of this 32% versus 25% for the thin wire. So, not a big difference, but noticeable, if you care about these things anyway. So, why such low rate of incomplete resection? Well, if you're looking at tiny things, then there will be very little left on the margins. I don't think it's clear here for small polyps, maybe it doesn't matter, but this does not inform whether it's better to use a thick or thin snare when removing a large flat polyp to prevent incomplete resection. Another interesting bit about this paper is that there is a lot of effort spent discussing hot versus cold snare technique, even though the whole paper is cold versus cold. One thing for sure, over 600 polyps removed here, an incomplete resection rate is less than 2%. So this is good news for cold snare crowd who were worried, and it doesn't really matter which snare you use, as long as you know what you're doing. I've tried to stay away from as many COVID papers as possible when it comes to GI, and then there's a million of them out there, mostly boring things. Now this paper is about much more interesting things. Title is Outcomes of Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding During the First Wave of the COVID-19 Pandemic in the Toronto Area. Admittedly, this is a single city experience of Toronto, Canada, but nonetheless, I think if we look closer, this probably replicates in other places around the world. What they did here, they looked at upper GI bleed admissions during the COVID-19 and control period right prior to it at six hospitals in the city of Toronto. In terms of who these patients were, there were not really any differences other than COVID, which is not really surprising. So what happens when you look at clinical outcomes such as readmission, re-bleeding, and need for angiography or surgery? Conclusion is as follows, and I quote, 
while patients admitted for upper GI bleed during the first wave of the pandemic were less likely to receive endoscopy, this had no impact on mortality or any secondary outcomes. Now, let's go back to the beginning of the pandemic. Remember how scared we were of the virus? And for good reason. We had patients alone in the room with IV pumps in the hallways, with medical staff minimizing contact with the infected. Remember, upper endoscopy was thought to be a aerosol-generated procedure, so we tried to avoid them. Biggest worry was that minimization of endoscopy would cause a great deal of harm. So let's look at the data. Most important outcomes. In-hospital mortality. No difference. This is despite dramatic drop in endoscopy. About 10% of patients received less endoscopy. And what I find interesting is that, at least not very evident in this paper, I suspect that the sicker the patient was, easier it was for GI docs to say no to the scope. But even despite this, no difference in mortality. Looking at other outcomes, there was no difference in rebleeding rates either, no difference in transfusion requirements or surgery. Now, there are two other papers that have come to the same conclusion, one out of Hong Kong and another one out of New York City. And there's one paper that had a different conclusion with more mortality out of the UK. Several things I have to say about this paper. We assume that doing less endoscopy will lead to worsening outcomes. But that all depends on how much endoscopy we do. Recently, there was a big debate on Twitter that I was involved in regarding the value of inpatient colonoscopy for lower GI bleeding. Turns out that there are whole countries that rarely do lower endoscopies. But it was interesting how much value people find in inpatient procedures. And I'm not saying that there is no value. I think the amount of scoping that is done in the United States is probably more than necessary. There's a whole plethora of reasons for this, including financial reasons, hospital-related reasons, and population reasons. It is also possible that's not true and that the difference in mortality is because GI docs in Toronto are just really good at judging when to do endoscopy and when not to do it. That could explain it easily. Another thing I want to say is that COVID-19 was a horrible thing to happen to the world with many hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their lives. But I'm glad that some folks out there trying to get some good out of this by doing studies like this to see what we can do differently to improve lives of our patients. Red section of the American Journal of Gastroenterology is usually a pretty good read. The February issue of the How I Approach It section is all about endoscopic surveillance of Barrett's esophagus. Definitely worth a read. Few key takeaways I wanted to point out. One, they're trying to come up and qualify some possible quality indicators for Barrett's surveillance that we may want to establish. Few things still ring true. One is inspection time. The authors recommend about a minute per centimeter of Barrett's mainly trying to increase neoplasia detection, minimizing just taking random biopsies, which you will still do. But if there are any subtle nodules, you may catch them more often if you take time to look at them. So a minute per centimeter seems kind of arbitrary, but it's very reasonable. To how to biopsy. Long-time listeners may know how much I hate classification systems and protocolizing certain descriptions. Here is one of those good exceptions, however. Prague classification of Barrett's is very straightforward and intuitive. As long as you know where the GE junction is, top of gastric folds. You document circumferential extent, this is the C, and the maximum extent, this is the M, and you're done. And everyone in the room knows what you're talking about without needing to look up what C or M is. So how do you biopsy? Obviously, if you see a lesion, describe it. Biopsy it separately, but if there are no lesions... I guess you do take random biopsies then. One more point. There is a worry expressed by some that if you biopsy lesions, 
it will be harder to EMR them later. Not unreasonable worry, but there are papers out there basically saying that you need to wait a few weeks before attempting EMR and it will be all okay. Biopsies are okay as long as you don't go crazy and make a mess. After any targeted biopsies are taken, then take random surveillance biopsies. Seattle protocol is great for this. Not excessive, four biopsies for every two centimeters or every one centimeter if there was dysplasia before. Now, what about Watts 3D, the new kid on the block? Part of guidelines now under conditional recommendation with low level of evidence. Two things to add here. One is a quote. In those with long segments, Barrett's esophagus, and other risk factors for progression, we often add sampling using Watts 3D. End quote. Obviously, the number of patients here would be defined based on risk factors, but I do add Watts for long segment Barrett's myself. So when do you do Watts 3D? Before biopsies or after? Here they say that you do brushes before Seattle biopsies because the tip of the brush can impact into the biopsy defect and bend the brush a bit. Honestly, this is not what I do, mainly because I want to see what I'm biopsying and then as long as you're careful, the brush doesn't bend too often. But if you brush before, you create a bloody mess and it's hard to see anything. Obviously, we need more data on whether the Watts changes outcomes at all, but more sampling for long segments of Barrett's is a good thing for now. Conclusion is take your time, look around, have a structured way you do it every time, and follow it from inspection to sampling. One thing I wanted to see is a more of a discussion on surveillance intervals, but this is not here. Very good summary, definitely worth a read if you're doing Barrett surveillance, and I'm sure you're already doing all this stuff anyway, so it will give you a peace of mind. Every endoscopist should know what to look for in an abdominal x-ray for signs of perforation, meaning air in the peritoneal cavity. If you scope, you will perf somebody. It's just a matter of time. Lucky for us, there's a good image that gives you not one, not two, but three signs of peritoneum all in one image. Now, obviously, this is a podcast and I can't show you the image, but you can just look up the terms I described for you and you will see it. Just Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. Or just look at the image of the month in the March issue of Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. So the signs are in no particular order. One, hyperlucent liver sign. This is when a pocket of free air replaces the brightness of the hepatic shadow. Two, the falciform ligament sign. This is when you see a longitudinal linear density of the falciform ligament outlined by gas. And three, the Wrigler sign. You might also know this one as the double wall sign, probably more common. This is when the bowel wall is outlined by gas both inside and outside. The other signs not present here are air under the diaphragm, which is better seen with patient upright. And that's not always possible in your endoscopy unit. And I think there is a total of 10 or 11 signs to look for. But here you see three at the same time on a supine x-ray, which is nice to see. So definitely worth reviewing. Chemospray from Cook Medical performs impressively in randomized trials. What is Hemospray? What is the powder in it? Turns out it's bentonite clay. Same stuff you use to make your pond water resistant. Personally, I've seen it as good as any other modality at achieving immediate hemostasis, even in arterial bleeding. But the concern is re-bleeding, of course. Here is evidence that is not a concern any more than traditional therapy, at least according to this trial. It used to be that you could only burn, inject, or clip bleeds in the upper GI tract. Oh, and of course you can send a patient to IR. 
Hemospray initially was a tool to go for big cancers that bled, and you obviously can't just put a clip on those. But now folks are using it for any bleed that you can control. This paper was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine December issue of 2021. It is a non-inferiority randomized trial, which is interesting. There were other trials before, and they included like 20 patients, which is not ideal. Here, about 250 patients with upper GI bleeds, active oozing or spurting found during endoscopy, mostly ulcers, but some cases of other stuff were randomly assigned to hemospray or standard therapy. For obvious reasons, there were fewer failure of hemostasis during index endoscopy with hemospray, 2.7% versus 9.7% with standard therapy. Recurrent bleeding within 30 days did not differ between groups, 8.1% versus 8.8%. There were no differences in death, surgery, angiography, or other endoscopic treatments. So then there were some fancy analysis trying to show that if anything, hemospray may be better overall. But if you really look at it, it was best for treatments of tumors again. So what do I think? Should you be reaching for hemospray for your common bleeding ulcers in the antrum or a dilophoy? Hmm, I'm not sure, but you really should know how to use it because it's quite impressive, especially when you can't control the bleed. But in cases where you can just put a clip on a vessel or inject some epi and burn the vessel away, if you can do it, you should probably do that instead. Especially if there is a re-bleed, you can always go back in and the area is still nice and clean and you can do more stuff. Many patients with GERD get partial relief with PPIs and we keep pushing PPIs because they work better than trying to change lifestyle, trying to lose weight, trying to quit smoking. But what else can we do? For years we've been recommending to folks not to sleep on a flat surface, use a wedge, etc. Some have advocated to sleep on the left side. Is there a merit to this last statement? Meaning, is there any difference in sleep position on the occurrence of nocturnal gastroesophageal reflux? This next study looked at about 50 patients who were given pH impedance catheters and started recording how much acid exposure there was based on which side they slept on, left supine versus right side. The idea is that the right lateral decubitus position, the stomach is positioned above the esophagus, which makes it easier for gastric contents to flow into the esophagus in case of a weak LES or transient LES relaxation. And it looks like sleeping on the left may be better for you in terms of less acid exposure in your esophagus. But there are several issues here. One is that there was no difference in the number of reflux episodes between the three major sleep positions. And despite showing a difference, meaning that there's less reflux while you lie on your left side, this is a one-night-only study. And there's no reported clinical difference that has been proven here. There is a statistical difference in acid exposure time and clearance time, but if you look at the whisker plots for both acid exposure time and acid clearance time, there's a wild variability in both. So even though there is a statistical difference, clinically speaking, there may not be a difference. And just imagine the amount of anxiety you may add to a patient who worries about, I don't know, Barrett's esophageal cancer or something. And now you're telling them that if they sleep on the right side, there may be acid in their esophagus compared to if they sleep on the left side. Now, I'm not saying this finding is not worth anything. Actually, this is great. And I think in select patients, it may be a good idea to recommend. But I would be very careful about recommending this to everyone. And I think if you did a longer study, maybe you will get some more clinically relevant information in terms of actually what the patient is feeling that would be useful too. Again, not a fan of Boston Bowel Prep Scale. I think it's a gimmick. 
I mean, look at the reports out there, just two across the board in most reports. Again, very subjective, zero, one, two, or three, all subjective. There has been a lot of talk of how this is validated and should be used, but so are other systematic ways of assessing, including just saying whether the prep is adequate versus it isn't. And when I say it was subjective, finally, we have the very authors who published the original research on this scale stating that it is subjective. Now, why is that? Well, as you know, our robot overlords are here, and I hope that wide use of artificial intelligence will solve this problem for us, maybe. So here's a paper looking at AI to judge if PrEP is good enough, published in GIE. In this study, they took four humans and pinned them against two different AI neural networks. And moral of the story here is that AI showed good performance and agreement with experts. Hmm, I like where they're going here. But here's the problem. Let's look at the four experts. Here you see something funny. One of the experts didn't go along with the other three when judging the adequacy of the PrEP in two out of the ten colonoscopies, meaning completely different. In these two colonoscopies, the PrEP wasn't perfect, with the other eight out of ten colons being squeaky clean. And it's hard to judge if this was a fluke or it would just happen more often if a wider sample was used. Good thing though, AI agreed with the three out of the four folks here. So maybe AI would be better at judging whether the colon is clean or not. But I don't see anywhere in here the reason to use Boston Bowel Prep Scale at all versus just stating whether the colon prep is adequate or not again. I don't think there is a big opposition to the Boston Scale, mainly due to apathy rather than the belief that it's so great. Anyway, my hope is that AI will save us all. With the arrival of the Rome 4 criteria for IBS, there has been a shift to focus on IBS diagnosis closer to the initial encounter in the clinic, rather than after an exhaustive search for alternative diagnosis. Patients present to clinic with a variety of complaints, including diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, bloating, distension, etc. A good question is which symptoms in patients with suspected IBS would be so-called alarm symptoms that would lead you to perform all sorts of studies, including colonoscopies. And what would be the yield, let's say, on a colonoscopy for each one of these symptoms? The next study answers this very important question. They looked at over 600 patients with Rome 4 functional bowel disorders who had a colonoscopy. And then they looked back to see which one of the symptoms had the highest yield in terms of diagnoses, like looking for IBD cancers or microscopic colitis. In this study, patients with Rome 4 criteria for functional bowel disorders and alarm features the diagnostic yield was 12%. But there were notable differences. IBS constipation had a much lower yield compared to IBS with diarrhea or functional diarrhea. A difference of 6% for constipation, up to 17% for diarrhea. For gastroenterologists seeing patients in the office on a regular basis, this is not a big surprise. And this is not what's interesting in the study. The interesting point is in Table 3, where relative influence of each individual alarm feature or the likelihood of organic disease being found in colonoscopy is listed. Iron deficiency anemia here, a well-known alarm feature, would yield 20%. So what do you think? Say weight loss, would it be higher or lower than iron deficiency? Ah, weight loss was about 19%. Highest on the list was actually age over 45 at 51%. Nocturnal symptoms, rectal bleeding, and raised inflammatory markers also made the list. Now, obviously, many of the patients had multiple symptoms. So let's see what the adjusted odds ratios show. Abnormal GI exam was the highest odds ratio of 4.3, followed by raised inflammatory markers at 2.4, and nocturnal symptoms at 1.4. 
it was also interesting to see that if you use the cutoff of age of 45, you saw a vastly different landscape of organic disease with 85% of patients below the age of 45 having IBD compared to only 30% of patients above the age of 45 with cancer and microscopic colitis making up the difference. I'll read the author's conclusion for you here, which is very telling. Quote, most patients with symptoms of functional bowel disorders who are referred for colonoscopy have alarm features. The presence of organic disease is significantly higher in diarrheal versus constipation disorders, with microscopic colitis largely accounting for the difference, whilst also being a missed diagnostic opportunity. In those patients without alarm features, the diagnostic yield of colonoscopy was nil. End quote. Awesome study. That is all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. If you have articles you want me to read, please send me the PDFs to info at GI Pearls, as I do not have subscription to every single journal out there. If you like what you hear and want more episodes released, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the podcast and helps my ego. Thanks again. Bye-bye.